As we start a new year, we're also living in the brave new world of artificial intelligence and healthcare. But what's at stake in terms of privacy and other civil rights? It begins with a sort of set of principles about the kind of American vision for the, the use of AI and driving innovation is sort of key to this, but we're going to do it in a way that um, is always upholding our sort of values around the privacy of patients and the healthcare case, that systems should be safe and effective and secure and they shouldn't be harming people, they should enhance their lives. Acclaimed scholar and writer, Dr. Alondra Nelson, says all Americans deserve an AI Bill of Rights, and she took on the challenge of helping to draft the blueprint for President Biden. We'll ask for an update on the promise and the challenges of making automated systems work to improve our health. But it's also the case that some of the challenges that we're facing with regards to bias in AI are about questions, you know, that that it almost takes an outsider or somebody who's a little bit removed from the building of the algorithm to help think through um, some of these challenges. This is Conversations on Healthcare. Alondra Nelson, welcome to Conversations on Healthcare. Thank you so much for having me. You, you served as the deputy assistant to President Biden, acting director of the White House Office of Science and Technology Policy. I wonder if we could start out broadly by asking you to give our listeners an overview of the president's executive order on AI, which was released on October 30th, 2023, and how it deals specifically with healthcare. So this is, I think, the most extensive and longest executive order in American history. So it gives you a sense of just how important and significant um, this executive action, I think, is in the larger scheme of things. Um, it covers everything. I mean, AI is um, a, a, you know, a general purpose tool that's going to affect all facets of life. And it is the culmination of you know, a couple of years of work at the very least. I mean, you could think about it as longer, uh, a longer array of work um, in the policy space. And it, it really attempts to sort of offer a vision for how we want society, American society, to both be deeply sort of innovative, um, but also use the tools in a safe way. So this, of course, includes the national security space. This includes workforce and how we're going to not just allow the use of automated systems and AI just to take over work, but how government can help and communities and industry can work together to shape how we want that to look and to augment that work. And that work includes the work of doctors and nurses um, and researchers, biomedical researchers and the like. Um, and then there's specific, you know, call outs, of course, to um, to Secretary Bracera and his and his team at, at HHS. And, you know, the, the healthcare space is really interesting because um, organizations, agencies like the FDA had been regulating AI as medical devices for a very long time. So I think there's probably lessons to be learned. So it's it's offering um, for uh, the, it's asking the executive order for um, healthcare um, and, and, and sort of agencies and the federal government and the executive branch that use AI for healthcare to really sort of lean into their existing powers and authorities around healthcare. And then also to explore what the limitations of some of these tools might be and what can be done on the research side um, I, and in the regulatory side to to mitigate some of those. Well, Alondra, you're really uh, just zeroed in on one of the most interesting things going on in the country today. And I thought one of the most interesting uh, elements of the Biden approach 
uh, is that you're trying to learn from what you call the cautionary tale from social media regulation, uh, noting that uh, perhaps the government did not uh, quickly or quickly enough regulate it. Most of us probably understand what you mean, but but explain uh, to us from your perspective what happened is happening in social media that you want to try to avoid with artificial intelligence. So first, I would say that the the, the challenge that we face with audit, with artificial intelligence is that as these tools get more powerful and get more capable, the issues that we're already facing um, become bigger, right? So this this sort of scale and the velocity of artificial intelligence tools and systems to to sort of supersize the issues that we're already dealing with. This is what we're facing. And so I think many of us, you know, you're, you, uh, both you and Mark, and I think the listeners, uh, uh, you know, are already sort of facing or, or concerned about some of these challenges. It's certainly what I heard in my time in government. So concerns about um, young people, concerns about the mental health issues around young people who spend a lot of time um, in the social media space. And partly why not only young people, but all of us spend so much time in that space is that we're served and sorted through algorithms that are becoming increasingly powerful things that we that resonate with us emotionally, things that we want to see more of. And, you know, like a bag of candy, we might like it very much, but the things that we want are not always good for us um, taken to the extreme. So that's one of them. Obviously, we've had challenges around um, misinformation and disinformation, uh, you know, an issue in the healthcare space, obviously, that the, that Surgeon General Murthy has been um, working on his entire tenure. Uh, but what that means for the upcoming elections that are taking place in 2024, literally all over the world. I mean, all of the world's biggest democracies will have elections in this year. And what does it mean to not just have a, a couple of bots or a, a TikTok video um, sort of disseminate misinformation? What is it, you know, how does that potentially sort of amplified and scaled by, um, you know, a smart use of artificial intelligence um, to do that. Uh, and then we've got in the healthcare space, I mean, issues of, of bias. And so that, you know, I, the, the, the sort of aim for all of this, why we're working so hard, I think why there's an 111 page executive order, I think the longest ever, is because we do want to be able to use this to help people improve their lives, these tools, including, um, you know, in the healthcare space. But if there's evidence, as there currently is, that some of these algorithmic systems being used, um, you know, in hospitals are not just sort of bias in their use, but exacerbating, making actually not better, but worse in some instances. I'm thinking, of course, of the um, important work of, of Ziad Obermeyer and his colleagues. So those are some of the, the challenges that we already face, some of them related to, to social media, some of them related to, um, I'll put this in scare quotes, you know, less sophisticated uh, AI uh, systems than the generative AI that we've, that's just been, you know, that we've been living with for about a year. Mm -hmm. yeah, I was thinking as you were talking about uh, elections across the globe, I'm wondering how much uh, 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 referencing you did to other governments' uh, activity in this area of, of regulation. Is there anything going on uh, elsewhere in the world that you were uh, keeping an eye on? Obviously, we can do only so much here. Uh, this is a global issue. Uh, and I'm wondering what your thoughts are about uh, how this might either be an exemplar for other countries, or uh, did we learn some lessons from uh, other activity going around the globe? The great question. So we had the great fortune, actually, of coming into um, a conversation around AI policy, both in the United States and globally, that had been taking place for a few years. So it wasn't, you know, I think things reached 
a kind of crescendo in the policy space um, uh, during the Biden-Harris administration, and we're sort of working that through now. But in prior administrations, both in the Obama administration and the Trump administration, there had been endeavors to, you know, work with the OECD, um, to work with uh, an organization called the Global Partnership on AI, to begin to build a kind of global global benchmarks and a global conversation about um, AI tools and systems, recognizing exactly, as you say, uh, Mark, that all of these issues, I mean, part of the the sort of the beauty and the the sort of value add of social media in part is that it connects us um, and, and then powerful in profound ways. Um, and so all of these issues, of course, are always global. So that had already been taking place. And there are things um, taking, there are also sort of bodies that were stood up um, in the last couple of years, like the Technology and Trade Council, the TTC, which is an EU and, uh, um, and, and excuse me, US effort that is meeting at regular uh, intervals um, to sort of think about AI policy. And then um, most recently, uh, in the same week, actually, that President Biden issued his executive order on on safe, secure and trustworthy AI, uh, the U.N. Secretary General um, appointed uh, a body uh, called the High Level Advisory Body on, on AI, which is really attempting to move from a set of principles. I think organizations like OECD, UNESCO, um, Microsoft, for example, in the industry space, had um, asserted over the course of many years sort of ethical principles and guidelines for AI. And I think what's happened over the last year is that um, it's become very clear that, um, you know, to use the metaphor, we need to put meat on the bone. Like, what are these principles in action? How do you operationalize them in the different spec uh, sectors in which our AI tools and systems will be used, including in the in the healthcare sector, and how to get traction on that and to do that? And so that body was stood up on October 28th, and I'm I'm happy to be a member of this um, this UN body. It's uh, 38 people from 32 um, countries that are attempting to uh, come to some you know basic agreement. On, on how we can uh, responsibly operationalize these tools. Because it's very complex on a global stage, but even right here uh, in the United States, we have a lot of federal sub-agencies uh, involved. We have FDA, we have the Office of the National Coordinator on Health, just to uh, note two of the most prominent. And I wonder from your, uh, you know, your expert uh, perch and viewpoint, uh, do you foresee that we're going to need one overarching regulator for healthcare AI here in the United States? Do you think, I know that's asking you to forecast out, but it is, it is very challenging to think about how this, how this works if we're coordinating across all the departments. I think um, my answer is, uh, I think very much Margaret in your, um, uh, in your question, I, I do think we need coordination. I think for me, it's an open question whether or not we need an agency, a separate agency, because the, the details of the domain-specific uses of artificial intelligence systems are so specific. So the rules and regulations of HIPAA, the rules, regulations, and powers that FDA has, um, you know, that other kinds of organizations and sub-agencies at HHS have versus, you know, thinking about sort of the Federal Trade Commission or in the financial sector. So in some ways you're, you're and you could imagine, for example, that, all of these agencies and sub-agencies might be using generative AI. They might be using right. the same sort of baseline tool. And so I, you know, on what, so I can under, I can appreciate why someone would think, well, we just need one big regulator, right. but the sort of granularity in which different agencies and offices will use these tools and their particular um, 
use cases uh, and and sort of regulatory apparatus that already exists around them and might need to be developed, I think is distinct enough that what we can what we probably need and can hope for is better coordination across mm-hmm. government, which is a clarion call. I'm sure that you have heard many times about many different issues um, on sure. the show, uh, and I think is only just made more acute by the the sort of power and and fast sort of movement that we're seeing with AI. Well, in the interim, it's it's a little like herding cats, uh, uh, and I'm I'm thinking about, and I'm I'm not sure the glass is half full or half empty, but I'm going to take the positive sign that at the end of 2023, there were 28 major healthcare companies that signed the president's uh, volunteer uh, voluntary commitments. Um, it's a big industry. I don't know if 28 is is uh, uh, a number we should be happy for or not, but tell me. What do they sign up for uh, and what gets covered in those commitments? So what get covers in the covered in those commitments is some of uh, a kind of um, continuation of the earlier voluntary commitments that President Biden was able to negotiate earlier last summer in the summer of 2023 with the sort of large tech companies. And these are just sort of basic principles around privacy, around providing some transparency in the systems that are used and accountability to the public about their tools and systems, about ensuring that the tools, whether they're consumer products or algorithmic systems used in hospital systems, are you know safe and effective. So the principles, you know, one thing to say, um, a mark about President Biden's executive order is that it begins with a sort of set of principles about the kind of American vision for the the use of AI and driving innovation is sort of key to this. But we're going to do it in a way that um, is always upholding our sort of values around the privacy of patients and the healthcare case. That systems should be safe and effective and secure, and they shouldn't be harming people. They should enhance their lives, um, help them have better lives and better health um, and better workplaces, uh, for example. So those are the things that that these companies um, agreed to. And I think it's important um, in the regulatory space for us to really remember that this is really um, one of the it's been the case in healthcare for a long time. And so I think that there's a lot to learn from um, the ways that algorithms and medical devices that are algorithmic have been used and regulated thus far by the FDA. So I, I also think the healthcare space is a space for learning for the rest of the federal government um, around these uh, issues. And it's an, important to say that. Um, but these um, the the sort of what we need in this moment, because so much of this is driven by industry, is, of course, for industry to make voluntary commitments. So I think to Margaret's earlier question about the social media space. So did we drop the ball, I think, at a moment where government um, and regulate we had perhaps a bigger window to sort of just do regulation around the use of algorithms? You know, I think that is the case. I think more could have been done. But it is also the case that in the intervening sort of 10 or 15 years that organizations like OpenAI, like Anthropic, like these large, the, the, you know, the, the, the sort of really frontier AI, generative AI laboratories really, you know, know the systems better than government ever will. And there's a particular need for partnership there that may not have existed in other kinds of regulatory, you know, regimes or moments before. So we need companies to step up. We need industry standards. We need industry norms. And I think the voluntary commitments are, an, are an, uh, you know, a sort of benchmark that companies that want to understand themselves to be leaders in the space, responsible, um, and to be demonstrating that they are going to be accountable to the public and want to be good 
you know, corporate actors, I think, can sign on to those. And that is a necessary partner to uh, regulations and, and other sort of tools and levers that government uses. Well, this is uh, such a complicated area, but I am thinking we have you know, decades and decades, certainly my whole career of uh, learning about the bias in research when we are uh, underrepresenting people of diverse race and ethnicity and backgrounds. We're trying to tackle some of that with the NIH All of Us uh, project right now in, in real time, one of the largest studies going on, on, on in the United States. But it seems that that really uh, has some lessons for us here. And I think you referenced this earlier, a recent study that found a clinical algorithm hospitals were using to decide which patients needed care showed evidence in retrospect of racial bias, deciding that black patients uh, or showing that black patients had to uh, demonstrate more uh, criteria for how sick they were than white patients in order to be recommended for the same care. That's a brief summary of it. Where Where is this... Uh, avoiding the bias and uh, health inequity that has characterized so much of our healthcare system that I think there's so much commitment to change, but where does the responsibility for that lie in the development of AI in uh, clinical practice? Is that in the hands of industry? Is that in the hands of the academics? Is that government's responsibility to ensure that before these things uh, come to market, so to speak, they've been tested from that perspective? What are your thoughts? It's shared responsibility, full stop. And it's shared in part because algorithmic systems, generative AI, advanced AI, that the sort of really capable systems that we're gonna be moving into um, are, are sort of iterative. They change in their dynamic. So, you know, I, I think a lot of our thinking around regulation of algorithms, if we think about medical devices, is that the object is static and you create a regulation for it. And then that is, you know, that's supposed to sort of be, um, you know, significant or to be to be mitigating of risk, um, uh, you know, for the whole time, the whole use of the algorithm. Mm -hmm. But what we know with advanced AI systems is that you are um, will be sort of continuing to bring data into the systems. You'll be continuing to refine the, refine the algorithm. And so there's responsibility, I think, a lot for all of those stakeholders, I think for, you know, government before these things are released, you know, so has FDA sort of done its due diligence before this has even been able to, to be used in a hospital? Has a hospital system as a vendor, as a purchaser, a procurer of this system done their due diligence around, you know, the, the tool and, and whether or not it works? Um, and then at the clinical practice level, you know, is it working? You know, we want to... <clears throat> I think, <clears throat> excuse me, certainly in these early stages, leave space for um, and must leave space for this to augment the work of doctors, nurses and other medical professionals and to leave them space to have their own judgment. And I think, you know, they will uh, be able to tell whether or not an algorithm is is being, um, I think, you know, accurate in some cases, even as the hope is that, um, you know, algor algorithms and the use of AI and medical care can help us discern things that, you know, we can't uh, do uh, alone as, as sort of human actors, um, doctors, nurses, researchers and the like. Mm -hmm. So I would so so I would say, um, yes, Margaret, to your question, but it's both about the full life cycle of the, the AI tool or system that you need to be checking it. And mm -hmm. in each of those moments in the life cycle, there's another there's a different kind of predominant actor, whether or not it's the, you know, the federal regulator or the doctor or nurse that's using it. Um, and then, of course, uh, the the systems change over time and we've got to just keep an eye on that. It's a mm -hmm. different it's one of the ways in which um, 
um, you know, having risk mitigation regulation for AI is, is different from some other medical tools and devices. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I want to pull the thread on, on Margaret's question about bias. And you've said you can't have good science without diversity. We'd certainly say from the healthcare world, you can't have good healthcare without diversity. But I'm trying to think about the workforce that we have and the, and the scientists that we really need to develop and cultivate. And there's a paucity of people going who have PhDs going into this particular area. But I'm wondering, are you seeing any good exemplars out there in terms of the cultivation of a diverse uh, uh, workforce uh, in the AI uh, area, which will be another check on mm -hmm. uh, uh, the sort of unfettered uh, uh, LLMs that are out there uh, that uh, really need a, a number of different eyes looking at them. Sure. I, I think we've gotten to a, a place, certainly in government. I mean, in the work that I was doing at OSTP, part of that portfolio was about really expanding the ability for you know, a larger group of communities to participate in the STEM fields. Um, and, you know, here I would pause to just um, honor the life of Congresswoman uh, Eddie Bernice Johnson, uh, who we just lost a few days ago, who yes. was just a, such a champion of this mm -hmm. on uh, the House Science Committee. And that meant, meant bringing, you know, people as she would do, you know, from urban communities, from rural communities, um, uh, because part of what, you know, healthcare, healthcare technology, innovation, offers from a government perspective are opportunities for people for their lives, right? For their well-being, but also employment opportunities to your point. I think we have significant data that more diverse teams are better for innovation. Some of the things, the challenges around bias that we're seeing in AI, when you sort of look back and think about them, in some instances don't need more PhDs in computer science. You just, you need, I think, diverse and multidisciplinary teams to be thinking about them. So in the instance of um, the case that the research, the, <clears throat> excuse me, Obermeyer et al. research that we'd been talking about, that algorithm, it turned out, was using prior healthcare costs as a proxy for illness, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. And in a, in a for-profit system like ours, prior healthcare costs mean that you're actually well off and you have good insurance, you know, like probably the, the three of us. And so you're going to be a higher user than people who who don't have uh, use. And so um, so, you know, I think if if you had brought someone into the room and said, oh, we're using healthcare cost as a proxy who doesn't who wasn't an engineer or wasn't an AI developer, um, <clears throat> somebody in public health, someone in the social sciences might have said, well, gosh, you know, this is what that proxy of cost is is actually going to do in the model. Similarly, uh, you know, we've got the work of um, a young woman computer scientist Joy Buolamini, um, Timnit Gebru, and others, who have demonstrated that some of the the, the sort of facial recognition tools, which have mm -hmm. all sorts of problems, but one could imagine um, them having some, you know safe applications ultimately if they're tested um, in the healthcare space or had not been tested or, you know, on people with dark skin. So so I think to your question, Mark, certainly we need um, and, you know, I think Congresswoman Johnson would say certainly we need like her more African-American nurses, more doctors, more people working at the intersection of, you know, uh, you know, who have RNs and also some computer science training, you know, these kind of interesting folks with multidisciplinary training. But it's also the case that some of the challenges that we're facing with regards to bias in AI are about questions, you know, that that it almost takes an outsider or somebody who's a little bit removed from the building of the algorithm to help think through um, some of these challenges. Mm -hmm. 
Well, that is a very interesting perspective. And I'm going to stay uh, a little bit with uh, workforce generally uh, for a moment. You're a distinguished senior fellow at the Center for American Progress. And we know the center uh, has said that there must be a plan to address the economic and job impacts. And now we're just talking about impact on the workforce generally from the use of AI. And CAP says we should try and steer uh, AI generation in a manner that complements and doesn't replace workers. Uh, so a great goal. How do you see this playing out in the healthcare sector? I think we use the levers that we'd often use in sort of, um, uh, I think, big manufacturing that you might use at like a sort of, um, for example, uh, you know, an, an auto plant or, you know, you can think mm -hmm. of sort of uh, how we've been thinking about industrial policy around the workplace and how that applies now to, you know, what we would call white collar workers, information workers, um, expert workers in the space of, of health and technology. Um, which is to say that, you know, to the extent that government, so if you think about something like the VA system or the VA hospital, to the extent that government and through executive action, if we're talking about that in particular, has the ability to say, we're going to create rules for how algorithmic systems are used in our hospital. One of the biggest hospital systems in the world can sort of help shape behavior and norms in this space. Um, and that means we are going to, I mean, there's often a case with some of these tools that you can um in generative AI, you talk about turning the dial. So you can have the dial give you kind of um, um, one way to think about it is sort of more or less or less mischief or more or less sort of agency um, uh, and the tool. And you could sort of imagine thinking about that in the medical workplace as well, which is to say we could turn the dial for, on full automation for this radiological tool or for these other tools. But we actually think that um, it's better for workers and it's better for outcomes to have an augmenting experience with these tools. And those are really choices that we can make. You can make as uh, as a consumer, either a hospital system or the federal government in the case of the, the VA about wh what you how you want the tools to participate um, in the workplace. Those are decisions that um, that can be made. So that's just one example. You can certainly think about um workplace training, you know, are there ways that that government or industry can partner? You know, there was a recently announced partnership between Microsoft and the AFL-CIO um, around participating together and creating the technologies and ways that include workers and their perspectives and the way that the tools are built um, before they're deployed. So I think we there are creative ways for us to, to think about this. And it's also the case, I mentioned the radiology example, which is mm -hmm. one of my favorite ones, which, you mm -hmm. know, we've been hearing for, um, uh, you know, not quite a decade, sort of six or seven years that radiologists were over, you know, that the whole field is over. It's going to be totally automated. Um, and of course, we know that that's just not come to pass. We, we right. need more radiologists than we actually have. Mm -hmm. It's certainly the case that radiologists working with excellent AI systems and tools, um, uh, you know, can often do their work better, but you really still do need their, you know, their discretion um, uh, and and making and getting the sort of the sort of optimal outcomes. Right. Critical thinking uh, continues to be yes. an important role. You know, I want to get your crystal ball on, on uh, what might be happening with this legislation. Advocates say one of the goals of the Biden-Harris administration was to really spur Congress, which seems not to be functioning at the highest level, uh, to draft and pass AI legislation. I'm wondering, is that moving forward? And uh, as, as I said, Congress uh, still seems to be at a standstill on some basic fundamentals. But is there hope that there's some bipartisan consensus that can come about 
around uh, AI regulations? Well, I think we, you know, I'd want to sort of mention here that there's been effort. There's been, you know, effort in the 117th Congress. There's been effort um, in this current Congress in the 118th. Obviously, um, Majority Leader Schumer um, has been working in a bipartisan way. There have been several, I think there have been nine now of these AI Insight forums. I was happy to participate in the second one on, on innovation um, and, and tried to make the case that one doesn't have to, you know, it's not a zero sum game between innovation and tools that are safe and responsible and secure um, for my part. So there is a good faith effort. I mean, and it is some of the the leaders and some of the policy thinkers around science and technology leading this effort that, you know, help to get things like the Chips and Science Act over the line. So you've got Senator Young working on this as well. So to the extent that there's any hope for moving forward any legislation, you know, Mark, I, I you know, hear and I think share your pessimism, I think often, you know, given now what we're, you know, we're, we're, we're a couple of weeks out from potentially another, you know, government shutdown. I mean, it, it's um, the, the calendar, there's not a lot of days left in the, in the legislative calendar for, um, for this Congress. And, and so, you know, I, I'm not optimistic. I would think I probably, it's glass, glass half empty for me on this one. Um, but there have been, you know, there is a recognition that this is a bipartisan issue that, you know, that lots of people will care about and would benefit from doing innovation in a responsible way, that there are, you know, U.S. companies, U.S. innovators, U.S. researchers that are really some of the world leaders in this space. So there are lots of incentives for Congress to get going on this. Um, and, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I, I try to be, to be hopeful, but I think, Mark, it, it, it doesn't look great. All right, I'm going to take us back to something maybe a little more hopeful, uh, <laughs> and that's thinking about the potential uh, for AI in addressing the behavioral health needs of the people uh, of this country, and really worldwide, certainly uh, from our perspective in a, a, a very large integrated primary care system where behavioral health is a core component. We've seen the mismatch uh, between the numbers of behavioral health staff that are uh, coming through the training uh, and the demands of the population. And AI in BH is not so new. Uh, I remember perhaps Mark uh, out of England looking at presentations as much as 10 years ago, kind of avatars that were there. That technology has no doubt moved on hugely with AI. Do you see this as a potential uh, to provide some very meaningful support uh, in the country for helping to meet the behavioral health needs of the population and perhaps freeing up uh, the scarce resources for those who need it most? What are your thoughts on that? And do you think do you think people will accept that? Uh, yeah, you know, I think so. I think it's a really promising avenue. And, you know, as I've been sitting in these po policy spaces, both domestic and international, um, thinking about the potential, you know, future uses and, and often sort of posing the question, like, what is the best case scenario for how we mm -hmm. might use AI, use AI if we can get it above a threshold of privacy and safety and security and trustworthiness? And, um, this is a use case that comes up quite a lot because I, it's becoming, as you probably know better than I, um, the data on on mental health uh, challenges and crises globally is yep. is is staggering, actually. Yep. Um, and and certainly in the U.S., we know as you know through the pandemic and after, uh, there's been um, uh, you know lots of challenges. So it does offer the opportunity to really scale mental mental health uh, resources to lots of different communities to do it fairly inexpensively. Um, to the extent that a, a lot of the challenges are with our young people, they're much more comfortable using 
you know, mm -hmm. their telephones with, they're much more comfortable with avatars. They're just, you know, digital natives plus plus. And so I think that using the, the sort of space of AI uh, for this is great. I guess my caution, the thing that I'd want to caution is that we shouldn't have to give up any of the protections that one would want to have or expect in a in a sort of one you know human clinical encounter. So mm -hmm. we really have to be careful about protecting people's privacy, and you know how are we thinking about um, not just the privacy and the use of the tools, but like what if there's a data leak of the company that you know is is sort of hosting or sponsoring um, this these particular platforms? So I would really like to think us to think smartly and and really hard uh, around those implications. There's obviously cybersecurity implications. Can people get access, um, you know, malign actors to files about right. people's mental health status? Mm -hmm. And then there's been some concern, particularly for colleagues who are worried about um, potential future risk with generative AI systems about, um, you know, things ranging from kind of addiction to emit to sort of emotional attachment to AI tools as they get more compelling. Um, and as they become, you know, I think more, we make them more human-like in the way they interact with us. So I think it's, we want to think about how to use these tools at scale to, to sort of bring the, the, the sort of care that people need. And the promise here is tremendous, but also do it in a way that doesn't, um, I think violate privacy that depending on, on, you know, the system and tool, uh, you know, abides things like HIPAA to the extent that that's yeah. appropriate. And also, you know, doesn't exacerbate by making people dependent in a way on the particular intervention um, mm -hmm. and help that they're getting. So it's a complicated space, but I think with a space with a lot of, of potential for, for helping people. And, and I would just, I would just want to underscore that. I mean, why we are, um, engaged in these regulatory battles, um, you know, why people are spending a lot of time thinking about um, AI policy is because the potential is, is, is extraordinary, right? Mm -hmm. But we've, but we've got, and we've got a wonderful opportunity and the kind of early stages to get it right. And so um, I think, you know, Margaret, to your earlier question, having not quite gotten it right with social media, right. it's a right. great opportunity to get it right and to really leverage and, and these tools yeah. to sort of catalyze um, much better outcomes for people, mm -hmm. which is ultimately, you know, with my former government hat on, the job of what government's supposed right. to do and, and, and right. how I think government um, policymakers think about the role of science, technology and medicine right. in particular. Dr. Nelson, thank you so much for joining us today for this fascinating conversation and for your leadership in this area. Uh, we really appreciate you joining us. And thanks to our audience for being here. As always, you can go online to chcradio.com to sign up for email updates. You can also share your thoughts and comments about this program. Thank you again so much. And again, best wishes for a happy and healthy new year. Thank you so much. This copyrighted program is produced by Conversations on Healthcare and cannot be reproduced or retransmitted in whole or in part without the express written consent from Community Health Center, Inc. The views expressed by guests are their own and they do not necessarily reflect the opinion of Conversations on Healthcare or its affiliated entities.